0: I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. Hello everyone. We're in for another beautiful episode for the podcast this week. My guest today is Greta Gleisner and she is a really, really powerful human being. We are going to be talking in this episode about how do you not give up when people deem you as chronic and it happens. People get told they're chronic. The insurance company says you're chronic. Therapists at times can say you're chronic dieticians doctors it happens family members how do you get through that and not give up we also talk about and one of the ways you don't give up is finding the tiniest flame that you still have burning and strengthening that that's what I do with my clients I try to find the smallest thing and we keep growing that and start growing sense of self which is something that is so important when you're trying to recover from an eating disorder we're also going to talk about how do you heal from an eating disorder when it's really entrenched in your family system you will hear in the podcast that both Greta's mother and father had an eating disorder so how do you move on when it's in your home, modeled by your parents. There's a lot of really interesting things that Greta has to talk about today. So I'm really excited and I hope you all enjoy the podcast. Here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I am so happy and honored to have a great colleague on this podcast, Greta Gleisner. Greta, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Karen, for having me. I'm
0: so excited to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. So Greta is a psychotherapist in New York City. She is. A, she has so many things on her resume of what she does. I am going to let Greta explain to you. So Greta, share with the listeners who you are, what you do, because you have some great projects. I, I call them projects, but, you know, big things in the fire. So go ahead.
1: Thank you, Karen. Uh, yes, first and foremost, I am an eating disorder and trauma therapist in Manhattan. I have a small private practice. In addition to that, I am the founder of Eating Disorder Recovery Specialists, which is an in home, on campus, community based, and virtual recovery support program for clients with eating disorders. Uh, we provide services uh, nationwide uh, both in person and virtually uh, and then my newest project is uh, sanctuary which uh, I co-founded with dr. Sarah chips and it is a uh, program for PTSD and uh, related trauma disorders we can it's an IOP uh, in Manhattan. Uh, Right now, it's 100% virtual, um, but we treat clients with a uh, trauma diagnosis as well as co-occurring eating disorders, mood disorders, substance use
0: disorders, etc.
1: And we just launched that starting with our first clients today.
0: Yep. So listeners don't know this, but today is actually August 3rd, 2020. That is the day of the recording. And today is the first day that Greta and Sarah have opened. And I'm thrilled for both of you. And Sarah is going to be a guest next week on our show. So this will be exciting. So Greta, I kind of just want to jump right in. I know that you had said that to some degree, you were almost diagnosed as like chronic, like almost to the point. And and typically when that word is thrown out, it's kind of a hopeless diagnosis. Tell me what your thoughts are, what was going on. I know that there was trauma, eating disorder, so many things that were wrapped up in it. So can you just give us a little bit of background and how it felt for you to be labeled? Chronic, because I think a lot of listeners get that label and feel hopeless.
1: Certainly, I would say that it was an implicit label. It wasn't an over. You are chronic. I certainly felt that I was chronic. Uh, I had been struggling uh, with with an eating disorder, you know, really since I was. 14 uh, with primarily bulimia and had gone to my last treatment center at 28 and kind of stumbled, you know, forward into a recovered state, but had also used food in some way, probably since I was five years old. And so there was always a, you know, I, I, I really thought because I didn't, I didn't think that I would be able to be free of it. And, you know, there was kind of research out there that was something like, you know, if you don't, basically, if you don't have early intervention, your chances of fully recovering go down drastically, uh, especially of course, the longer that you have it. And while I might have, you know, gotten into therapy a few years down the line, I really didn't have, you know, this was in the late eighties, early nineties, cause I'm 46. I really didn't have there, you know, proper, you know, like, Montanito might have been around was around, but in California, I'm from Kansas originally. You know, we had a hospital programs. <laughs> you know, so and that didn't even come until, you know, uh, eight years into my diagnosis. You know, so I really and the extent of my behaviors were so extreme and and constant that I just felt like How will I alleviate
0: uh, any of these symptoms um, permanently? Um, Can I interrupt for one moment? Because as you're talking, I am thinking of so many clients who have struggled for so many years. I'm going to just go right in it. How did you not give up? Because I have a lot of people that I've treated, have been through treatment programs, private practice, and they're like, I'm a lost cause. I've been doing this for 10, 20, 30 years. So Greta, I'm listening to you recounting on your story. How did you not give up?
1: I'm I'm pausing because that's such... I've actually, I don't think I've ever been asked that question, and I started to get a little bit emotional when you asked me that question because I know how it is. But it, and I, and I will address it. um, But it also traces so back to my earliest history of how I never gave up. Back dating back to five years old, Um, I never gave up. There was something in me that. There was just this little flicker of hope. I don't know how I had it. It was just internally that on a day-to-day basis, I was in a hopeless state, but on kind of a macro, more kind of spiritual uh, level, not that I felt spiritual, but there was this, I had this small belief that like, I'm... I just, there has to be, there's something better for me. And, and even when I was, you know, 16, I, I, I knew at that moment, I knew I was going to be a professional dancer, but I knew at that moment, like if I could ever heal from my eating disorder, then I would be a therapist. I knew from 16 years old, that was going to be my path after I danced. And so there was something that, Kept me like a hope, like a blind faith, um, just a little bit on a larger level. In the day to day, I felt like I'm never going to get out of this, but somehow there was something just keeping me
0: going. I wanna, I wanna highlight something you said that tiny, tiny, tiny flicker of hope, and I keep emphasizing tiny because sometimes it's that small. But when I can find that with a client, if I can say, is there anything? By the way, when I work with clients, I definitely want to work on the traumas, the behaviors, the all the emotional things that went into the eating disorder. But I also want to keep blowing on that little flame and saying, how do we strengthen that part as well? That's the part that I also really focused on, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that
1: yes, exactly i I definitely am the same on that and and particularly with uh you know eating disorder you know work, of course, but specific to the trauma work, you know it's like building capacity in multiple ways but particularly building capacity on the 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 possibility that it's possible to recover or that it's possible to move forward in some way. Um, and so that is definitely, you know, when I was in it, I, I think that prior to uh, real treatment, I just had a very tiny hope that just, it was like treading water. And then as I got into treatment, then I was, you know, starting to build capacity to have more hope and more like, oh, it's not just a possibility, it's, it could be a reality. And, you know, and then building from there.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you can speak to, because I know I know that you were a professional dancer. I also know that you said dancing was not a part of the eating disorder. In fact, it helped you with the recovery process. So, can you speak to that to being a dancer? you were a rockette. I mean, for people is that what it was a rockette? i i I can never <laughs> there's so many things that I can't get right. You were in a radio city. Rocket, right so that was we were just having this conversation before we started the podcast um and that's tremendous pressure so speak a little bit to that
1: yes so while it in in the moment it was not it was not you know when people hear oh you an eating disorder and you're a dancer, that's the go-to assumption. Oh, dance cause your eating disorder, you know, and, and for some that can be a big part of, you know, uh, some of the, um, you know, stressors and, 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 you know, factors that, that lead to the development and maintenance of an eating disorder. For me, while it wasn't, Helpful to be, you know, scrutinizing my body and things like that, you know, in the mirror. That piece wasn't helpful. It certainly didn't lead to me developing the eating disorder. I actually was never, um, I never had comments through my ballet teachers or any of my teachers around my body. uh, Or, yes, there was there was a general pressure and aesthetic that was there, but I personally never had people saying, you, you know, need to lose weight or you need to look a certain way. Or There was never a focus on that ever for me, fortunately. <laughs> um, I would say it did, uh, if there was, the impact would be on, uh, the perfectionist side, the uh, comparing myself to other people, but still, you know, what? how it really helped in a way is that dance, it didn't help with my eating disorder recovery per se, but having dance was the one thing that really saved me. I'd say, and kept me alive. <laughs> um, that was the thing that I had, uh, ex- you know, externally that I knew that I was, um, it was how I knew who I was at the time before the eating disorder. But I also internally, it was a world that I could, you know, uh, where I fit, where I could get lost in, where I, nothing else you know, internally, externally, you know, about my world was happening when I was dancing, you know, and so that really propelled me to like, take a lot of risks and, you know, move forward. And yes, I had the eating disorder alongside, But it was more like the eating disorder got in the way constantly of dance as opposed to dance exacerbating my eating disorder.
0: It reminds me, or not reminds me, but what I'm thinking of right now is this is where we can take any part of ourselves and use it as I'm going to use the words positive or negative. So for you, or I'll say for me, when I was in my eating disorder, the one, of the one of the functions was I didn't want to focus on anything else because everything else felt overwhelming. Life felt overwhelming. Becoming an adult felt overwhelming. My sense of self, intimacy, blah, 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 the whole thing. So I just narrowed in on my eating disorder. So compartmentalizing that way was working at a disservice to myself. Then there's the one that you focus on that is a healthy distraction, a healthy way of compartmentalizing, which for you was dance. It had almost the same effect, but in a healthier, more positive way. Everything washed away, and you were happy. You were in your body. You know, it's just so interesting that sometimes what we, a method that we use that actually hurts us, can also be a method to help us. It's so interesting. Do you know, I? I just I don't know. That was just what came to my mind.
1: Yeah. No, it definitely is. You know, um, I mean, it's it's. Very, you know, similar to, you know, Carolyn Coston always talks about those, you know, the temperaments and traits that, you know, used in the eating disorder, then when recovered, you use them in a more positive way. And it's exactly like that.
0: Um she talks about using traits for assets or liabilities. Is that right? What is with me today, everyone? I'm suddenly forgetting all of my words. Forgive me, everyone. It's only 10:30 in the morning. I make it sound like you know, oh my goodness, it's like 5 a.m. Nope, just having one of those mornings. So, yes, that's what it is. Assets and liabilities. You're right. What what role? did trauma play in the eating disorder? And how can you say you were able to walk, move away from the behaviors and drop more into yourself, even though we cannot change the past trauma still happens, but usually what we like to do is somewhat distance the relationship from it or change the relationship from it. So do you have any thoughts about that?
1: Yes. Um, the eating disorder really allowed me to live in a mostly dissociated state for the majority of my life to survive. Put simply, <laughs> um, you know, it really, you know, stuff, numb, avoid, not think about. Um, that is avoiding, (laughs) um, it allowed me to, you know, I couldn't tolerate, it had very many parallels of, you know, uh, I have, you know, history of childhood sexual abuse. It had a lot of parallels, uh, in terms of, you know, taking in purging, not tolerating fullness, all kinds of, you know, parallels there that I didn't really know at the time, um, earlier on. Um, but also in terms of attachment trauma, um, it was really, you know, it was there, you know, it filled me in a way and, and took away momentarily the just constant, Nine heartache and heartbreak that I repeatedly just felt as a result of just a lot of, you know, neglect and emotional abuse. And, and I say that with, you know, I, I know there's a lot of, you know, there are there are a lot of, you know, when working with clients and I work with families and there's, and my, and my family itself is also, you know, they, they're really wonderful in in different ways. And, but the families that I work with, I I see so many families and, and I think, wow, you know, like that level, the support that's out there, I don't want to say because I had this trauma and that trauma and that trauma that it's about parent blaming or anything at all in that way. I want to make that clear because I see so many families and parents that are just so supportive and wonderful, you know? But I also came, I also had, both my parents also had eating disorders. So they came with their own set of, like mom and dad. <laughs> so they came with their own set of, you know, stuff. Um, you know, so yes, there's all of the, the temperaments and the traits and all the kind of perfect storm to make it, you know, the eating disorder develop. Um, but I would say that the eating disorder really, uh, you know, the main function was to really help me. Fill as well as distance myself from various traumas and trauma responses.
0: How do you work with, or how did you yourself recover from an eating disorder when it's so entrenched in your family system? How do you separate yourself enough to do your own work while still? Immersed in a family system where, and especially parents, Greta. Um, like you, and forgive me for interrupting, I'm not blaming your parents. This is not about blame. This is that, these are the facts. This is so go ahead.
1: Thank you, Karen. Um, well, I would say, and this is kind of where I talk about how, you know, dance also saved me. As soon as I, I came from Kansas, a lot of people you know, most people in my world don't, don't move um, out of Kansas. They just stay, which is fine. I was 18. I was not doing the normal thing. I was off to LA into a, a, a dance studio scholarship program and I was out of there. So the first thing, you know, I think was to kind of get some actual distance, but I really had to create my own, well, the first thing I had to do is when I actually finally went to my final treatment center, I had to create my own community. I was fortunate enough to be in a, uh, I was in a state in Florida where there was a recovery community. Um, I also had to manage my expectations around emotional availability and of, of, uh, and limitations, um, for, you know, uh, for my family system, you know, uh, and, and create a new family system for my recovery. You know, my family is, and was great for certain things, uh, but for recovery, and emotional availability. It was just, I'm an only child also. And so I didn't have step siblings later on down the line, but I was really used to kind of operating by myself throughout my life. And so when I finally got into recovery, um, and creating you know and and was surrounded by people who were also trying to do the same thing that was the first piece and then i and then i created some kind of surrogate family members who could support recovery adults um i mean i was an adult as well but other people who were like par- parental figures to me that could also help in that way emotionally um and then I had other people that were kind of like siblings that I had never had, you know, so I just created a new family system while keeping my current family
0: system. The, that's the thing that I, I often say to people. Sometimes we have to create our family system. It's not the family we were born into. We have to create alternative parental figures, sibling figures, whatnot. And there also has to be, I shouldn't say has to, because that's not the way I like to talk, but there often is a grieving process of accepting. And when I say accept, I mean acceptance comes with sadness, frustration, disappointment, accepting that the family you were born into is not going to be there for this. And so there's so many emotions to work through. You're nodding, like you're agreeing quite a bit. So do you have any, did you want to add to that or?
1: Yes, that definitely the grieving process is something that for me is ongoing. Uh, You know, I'm 46, went to treatment for the last time at 28. So there's been almost two decades of time that has passed. And there was grieving prior to that, but there's, even though there's an acceptance and it's not the pain that it was in different ways, it still comes up, you know, as like, you know, it, you know, you know, it intellectually, but it's still like, you know, there's still that, you know, it's not as painful. You accept it, you know, it. But it's just, I think for, you know, I don't know for me if that will ever really go away that aspect, you know. Um, and I don't mean that in an unhopeful or like a always struggling with that sort of way. It's just, it's it's kind of, you know, one of those things where, you know, if you don't have something that you were, you know, supposed to or made to have and you never have it and you know you're supposed to have it then it's going to kind of
0: just you know you're reminded of it everywhere you know and when you say you don't mean to be unhopeful I I think this is one of the purposes of the podcast is you're not being unhopeful you're being realistic and you have to and this is where I am going to say have to have to be realistic through again disappointment, pain, sadness, suffering that eventually quiets down a little bit and sometimes comes up again. But that's the that's being recovered. And the whole point of this podcast is that life is not perfect. I don't have like you know, songbirds that wake me every day, and nothing bad ever happens to me. It's How do you navigate through a life where there are some things that are challenging and painful and they are not going to change as much as you are? So you have to do it for yourself. So I don't think it's being unhopeful at all. I think it's being realistic.
1: Yes, exactly. That's You took the words right out of my mouth um, because I thought that exactly right after I said unhopeful unhopeful um that's exactly what I thought um it's realistic you know it's accepting you know that these things and that just are the way that they are and sometimes I think that um particularly um maybe maybe I'll just speak for my you know I think that I probably thought that oh when I'm recovered from my eating disorder like everything is going to be you know not in a Pollyanna sort of way like like delusional like everything's going to be perfect all the time sort of way but I didn't I thought that because the ED was so bad and my life was so bad because of it that take that out and like oh you know I'm going to be like living my best life all the
0: time <laughs> and doesn't Yeah. It doesn't happen that way.
1: And, you know, so, and and there's also sometimes this idea, I think that's out there for, you know, that it's kind of put out there. Yeah. For recovered people that it's as if this kind of illusion, like this is life is great now and blah, 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 blah. And, and that is true. And the heart, you know, there's also really hard stuff and both can exist. Life, life can be dra- great and you can also be dealing with trauma or the
0: remnants of that, you know, at the same time. <laughs> How do you cope with underlying issues then? And with something that say relation, family relationships that are only going to change to a certain point because of their ability to change how do you cope with that ongoing challenge or frustration or disappointment?
1: Yes, I think that I have learned over the years, um, you know, a, a recovery phrase I learned, you know, early on, uh, you know, is the whole, you know, don't go to a hardware store for lemons concept. And I have learned. Over and over to not fall into certain traps and to set certain boundaries. And I still, even to this day, if certain things come up, uh, my first instinct sometimes is like, "Oh, I want to like text my mom or 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 my stepdad and and say this." And then I say, mm, "You know, like I I'm I can think that I'm gonna." I want to say it because I'm excited about something, but I know that like, I'm not going to get what I'm hoping to get. And so I'm like, nope, just back it up, <laughs> you know? And so I have to really internally remind myself and go to, well, if I am the, the, the people that are going to be most supportive, I'm not saying they're never supportive, but just for specific things, if I'm expecting a certain type of, or or wanting a certain type of support or response or a certain level of excitement about something to match, like what my experience is to some degree, I know who those people are that I need to go to, you know? And so.
0: no, I was just going to say, and that's really important. Not everybody can provide the same level of support. And that doesn't mean that these people aren't important in your lives just that you have to know who can do, who do you go to for this? Who do you go to for that? And by the way, it's funny. I always thought the expression was, you can't go to the hardware store and buy a loaf of bread for you. It's lemons (laughs) either way. I still love it. I say to clients all the time. So it's basically like you're going to the hardware store and you're like, uh, I can't find the bread. Of course you can't find the bread. They don't sell bread in a hardware store. So you have to go to the right places for the right support. Exactly. Exactly. You know, my family's very
1: supportive in different ways. This is and when you ask, you know, how do you cope um ongoing, you know, so much today is not uh so much about the family system. Um while that's still painful and yes, I I I still have kind of I, you know, I'm in my own therapy, of course, and as a therapist, always doing my own work. Um, and it it's not the same level of, you know, uh, dealing with the family system in the day-to-day. That's, you know, because of the acceptance and I know the limitations and all of that. But it is coping with various traumas and Just the grief, I think there's a, today I just cope by feeling it, allowing myself to grieve, allowing, you know, really finding out, you know, internally really listening to what I need if there are things that, you know, I grew up with a lot of, you know, internally I developed, of course, a lot of. You know rules about what emotions you can feel, what can't you feel, what do you need to override? Like all of these things that, through, you know, trauma therapy, really has come taken me to another level. Like I've been in therapy for most of my life and gotten a lot out of it. And I also thought, I'm, I'm going to, like, I have a great life. I have all these things. You know, internally, externally, recovered, blah blah blah, and I'm I'm always going to feel this, you know, some, you know, I'm always going to struggle here and there, like, and I guess that's just it. But but through trauma therapy, you know, different modalities in terms of somatic experiencing, EMDR, which is exactly why I wanted to start Sanctuary. I really found that, oh, it's actually possible that I could actually heal in a way without daily struggle, (laughs) you know, separate from eating disorder has nothing to do with the eating disorder, you know, but just life living life, you know, and, and I don't mean struggle, like everybody struggles, but like struggle to the internal struggle that, you know, can't paralyze you, the dread, the, this, the, that, that happens as a result of trauma. Um, You know, and so through these additional cognitive strategies alone wouldn't allow me to heal fully from that, you know? So the combination of cognitive with somatic and EMDR, that is the path that is, you know, my ongoing healing path. And I, can really see the light.
0: And we are multi-dimensional people. And so sometimes we need more than one modality. And I think sometimes people feel, oh God, I've got to add another therapist in for a while to do EMDR, do somatic resourcing. Am I that I'm going to use the term messed up because that's what my client, well, that's actually you not know, the term that they use, but I want kids to be able to listen to this podcast. Um, so, but what I say to them is, no, we are so, we are, we're cognitive thinkers, we're feeling, we're sensory people. So there's, no, and I always say, bring as many people into your village as possible. Don't worry about it. Bring it all in because that's what will best support you. There was, there was something I was going to say, and I do this every week and I apologize. Listeners must be so sick of me being like, and I forget what I was going to say. I know what I was going to say, which forgive me because this is a, this is a big question. So I, I don't mean to say I forgot it, but working with trauma and eating disorders, do you ever get triggered working in the field? Cause that's a lot Greta.
1: Uh, certainly I don't get triggered at all with talking about dating disorders. Not at all. Can't remember the last time that happened. Like, yeah, I mean, I don't even know when <laughs> years and years and years, um, trauma. Yes. Because I have some clients that mimic or not mimic, um, their traumas, uh, parallel my traumas that some of which i'm you know still working through because they take years and years to work through and you know um so yes but i have uh internal resources uh that i use um through different uh, somatic and emdr techniques imagery techniques things that kind of provide an emotional shield um uh to in session so that uh if I'm triggered it doesn't happen a lot um but it's something that um definitely if it's something unexpected um that all of a sudden somebody comes out with that can definitely oh didn't see that was coming and for a minute i can feel it in body you know and then i have you know in in a moment i'm internally reminding myself of you know my resource and all the things you know for a moment and then you know i'm I'm still present stuff with the client but yes of course that that happens um you know occasionally you know i will uh tap in my shoes (laughs) if something's very triggering. Um, but, but I'm, you know, it's not to the point that it's dysregulating for me in session or if it's something that's particularly hard, like in the moment when I'm in the therapist's chair, uh, yeah, I might feel it, but I'm like right there in the, you know, I'm in my therapist self afterwards. I'll have to process it. Um, you know so yeah it does happen it's it, it doesn't happen a lot but it happens
0: do you ever use that in your sessions and i don't mean you saying oh i'm feeling this in my body and let me tell you why and this is what it... but i often because i do think therapists are always susceptible to a client saying something that's going to activate something in them and sometimes what i say is gosh i'm i just i feel that in my chest I can't imagine how you feel it if you're just telling me it makes me hold my breath a little bit. Do you ever use it in that way? Again, not disclosing the actual trauma for you.
1: Yes, exactly. Yes, that will definitely happen. And particularly I'll use it if I notice noticing that I'm feeling, you know, constriction or a tight, you know, a tightness in my chest or somewhere in my body, or I notice that I'm suddenly spacey, you know, of course, I'm going to use that to, you know, know that something's happening also for the client, but also using it as myself as to, just as you said, the way that you use it, you know, just empathically. And, 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 you know, so that, they can see you know if, if we're feeling this, wow,
0: exactly. it actually validates a trauma victim who thinks they're either overreacting, it was their fault, you know, their feelings are just they're out of touch with their it. it validates and says, no no, no, that. I want to honor what you're feeling as opposed to saying you should be ashamed of it and push it down with food or starve it out of your body or throw up that feeling. You're saying, oh, wow, even I can feel it. And I'm just hearing, I'm hearing the narrative of it. Yes. That's why I often use in sessions when I can feel something in my body. That's, that's where it comes from for me definitely. It's, it is interesting. I, it is that, that clinicians are always susceptible because we don't ever know what's going to come out of our client's mouth. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm just saying it is an, it's, it's one of the reasons why therapists see therapists, right? Right it's one of the reasons why we do have to really take good care of ourselves. Like I make sure I get plenty of sleep. I eat well, everybody eat your food. Don't purge it. Don't binge on it. So I do all these things. I reach out for supports. I pay attention when my eyes start hurting because I'm, I'm starting to get into burnout. You have to pay attention. And that's also what we're modeling for our clients because that's how the real world exists right you have to pay attention yes yes definitely and
1: also too, you know as a therapist this this actually started when i was in graduate school and uh, and i was seeing my therapist there was something that that shifted up at times time that i thought oh well now that I'm in graduate school to become a therapist, I can no longer struggle with anything. <laughs> it was like such a cognitive distortion, but you know, as a therapist, you know, when you go a certain amount of time and things are, you know, you see your therapist or whatever, and then you do come up against something that, you know, maybe you're in a really stressful time and there's trauma that's triggered, or there's trauma that happens, you know, as you are, you know, um, years recovered and down the line, you know, for me, then it was like, well, who, you know, how am I going to get support, um, in a way that is going to feel, you know, who, you know, especially if you, if you know, a lot of people, not not in the eating disorder world, but just in general and therapy world with EDRS, I'm talking to clinicians all the time, you know? And so who am I got? And I don't mean that in like, who am I going to see? Cause I know everybody, that's not what I mean. But like you were, you know, you, you can kind of worry to some extent about like, oh, can I bring this in and maintain confidentiality or anonymity or, you know, if you're, you know, there was a, a period of my life several years back that I thought, oh, and it had nothing to do with ED, but it was just trauma related. And I thought uh, it was a hard place. And I thought, oh my God, like if I, if I needed some type of program to deal with trauma or something like where would I even be able to go? You know, and, you know, during that time, when I had a lot of stress and a lot of different trauma that were going on, you know, I basically just created my own, like you say, the village, I created my own little village of of, of a team. And, you know, you know, I can say that I, there, there's a little part of me that um, yeah, I say it without shame, but there's still that little part of them you know, that's saying right now, as I'm saying it, like, do you think you should really be saying that right now? Yes. <laughs> and, but that's the truth, you know, like that is, yes, I am recovered. And yes, I've been a therapist for a long time. And yes, there are things that come up in life that still can just rock your world. I mean, I mean, that's part of being human. I know that, but. You know, to actually be able to speak about it publicly, that's something that's not uh, often in our community. Yes, there are certain, I think that there are certain levels of within the recovered community that there are certain levels of things that are discussed. But there is also, and I've spoken to many other recovered professionals, there are other things that they're like, oh, I'd never, I would never say that to anybody in our community. You know, there's a lot of things that are taboo, you know, seemingly taboo that people would not want to come out with unrelated to the eating disorder because they're professionals, they're recovered. And what does that mean?
0: There's a sacredness to working with a therapist that is your like safe Harbor that is, has no connection with anything else. And by the way, that's why clients come to us we're not a friend in the friendship group we're not a colleague at the office we are someone completely separate that is there just for us just for the client and so i don't i i don't want to speak for you but i don't think it's fear of like confidentiality or anything like that but it's just it's a level of vulnerability that you want separate from the rest of your life and i say that in a positive way
1: yeah definitely um i think yeah i think that you're you're right about that and and also yeah the vulnerability and the idea that you know uh am i Almost as if like when i when I started um you know seeing this therapist, it was as if I, there was a part of me back then that felt like, oh, well, like I know all of these things, you know, from the clinician, my clinician self, like I know all of these things, and blah, blah blah, you know, like I'm not allowed. There was this belief almost in there that, like, I'm not allowed to do that. Not because I'm so much better than anybody, but, like, as a, like, there was that. It was just a defense, you know? Um, Yes.
0: (laughs) Protector part. (laughs) You know? And what was very humbling for me. Uh, when I sought out therapy a few years ago, uh, for a relationship I was in, and it was very complicated, and I had to acknowledge that I don't know everything about therapy and I don't know everything about myself, and that's why I'm going to therapy to understand to hear it out loud because it sounds right in my head, but then sometimes when you say things out loud or somebody reflects things back to you, so we don't know everything and i do think there's a lot of embarrassment like shouldn't you know how to take care of yourself if you are a therapist yes i do and as a result i am reaching out to somebody to talk to that's what i would recommend somebody else do but it's it's interesting it is very very interesting in our field isn't it yes definitely and um
1: and it, and and yes, I just want to clarify too that I certainly don't think I know everything, but there's that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was like, damn, Greta, I don't know.
1: <laughs> uh, not even close.
0: I was like, Greta, will you be um, my therapist?
1: <laughs> absolutely not. I want to clarify that for everything, for everyone out there, not at all. Don't think that at all. But the idea that, you know, you know, a certain level of skills and this and that and blah, 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 blah. Like all of those things, clinically, clinical interventions and yada, yada. And like, you still can't talk your way out of X, Y, or Z for certain situations, just because you know them and you could maybe help your client in a similar way.
0: (laughs) And it's also similar to doctors, no how not to get cold or get the flu, but they do because they're exposed to the environment. We know how to navigate through depression, anxiety, whatever it is. And we are exposed to the environment. So we are not immune to it.
1: Exactly.
0: Greta, <laughs> I wish we could go on for a lot longer, but we are going to have to start winding down. Before I ask you your final question, is there anything you would like to say that I didn't ask you that you want to say to listeners? Anything at all?
1: Uh, oh goodness. Um, I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot. I could talk for, for days with you.
0: I know, right? This <laughs> Sometimes these conversations go on offline and, like, you know, for hours. I'm still like, and then what about this thing and that thing? So, yes, but Greta, we are going to have to end. So, your final question is, though, that if someone were to write about you on the bathroom stall, what would it say?
1: I would say, I would say that. well, hopefully it would be something positive, but I would say that, uh, I'm persistent as hell. I hope that's okay to say, um, um, you know, I'm just going to push, I will never give up. That is what has kept me going and I will never get up, uh, give up, whether it's in a recovery process, whether it's dealing with an insurance company, <laughs> whether it's dealing with, uh, I will never give up. You know, uh, I have clients that sometimes think like, Oh my gosh, you're going to like give up on me or this or that. Never, ever, 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 never give up. And that's the message I also say, you know, for other people, never give up.
0: Right. That's right. Greta. It has been an absolute pleasure. I really want to thank you for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Karen. It has been wonderful. And so thank you so much for inviting me.
0: It's my pleasure. I was very excited to do it. <laughs> I was as well. Okay. All right, everyone. Well, that's it for another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to talking to each one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.